Folks, I'm happy to be here finally. My flight was taking off, then they aborted the flight, so we had to go back, recheck the engine, and come back from Bombay. Took some time. I think Rajiv has, Rajiv has been raising certain fundamental issues for quite some time, which all of us need to debate in this country. And the fundamental issues are, should civilizations protect their identity and retain their identity? Now, we are a very old civilization. It may go back thousands of years. We are very much to be proud of. Should we retain what our heritage is and invest in that? And why should we do it? Now, let's look towards the West. In Europe, they claim that the Western civilization civilized the world. And they invested heavily, and they go back to the Greek tradition. Greek, Rome, they forget the Dark Ages, then the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And they claim a unique place in world civilization and the mastery of this planet because they say we are the ones who made civilization what it is and they write about it and they write about us, they write about the Chinese and the Japanese and say that we are the superior civilization. It's a white man's burden. But they preserve the Greek classics. They have a lot of universities which reinterpret the Greek classics from time to time. They translate the Greek classics, the Roman classics into English and various languages, European languages and they have debates, conclaves, and they have mastery over the civilization, and they have retained their identity as Europeans, inheritance of Western civilization, something called the Western civilization. And they interpret our civilization, in their view, what Rajiv keeps saying, Pura Paksha, and they propagate their point of view to clearly demonstrate their mastery, to say that they're the originators of science and technology and everything else. So they have preserved. And they claim they're the center of the world. China, a very old civilization, <coughs> in the Cultural Revolution, destroyed everything that was of the past. We know what Mao and Mao did, right? In the Cultural Civilization, Cultural uh, uh, Revolution, the intellectuals are put back to the field to plow and to uh, for agriculture. And any, anybody civilized, educated, were banned, are put into the field to work, are sentenced to hard labor, because they wanted a break with the past. Now suddenly, when China has become the largest economy in the world, they want to rediscover the heritage. The Chinese took English names. You go to China, you talk to young people, they got two names, a Chinese name and an Indian name. I mean, a Chinese name and an English name. And they felt that they were deprived, and they wanted to demonstrate superiority, so they did that. Now, the China has become rich. China is going back and trying to rediscover its roots. I think an American author, I don't know his name, has written a 14-volume book, Why China is the Heart of the World Civilization, and all the great discussions of the old world happened in China. And now they're claiming the heritage, and many scholars in the West are mimicking the same thing, talking the same thing, and glorifying China. And in China, the billionaires are going back, buying those old Ming vases, and all the artifacts which have been taken away, especially after the sack of the Summer Palace in 1864. We all know Summer Palace for the height of human civilization, one square kilometer of pleasure and beauty, which was sacked by the European forces in 1864 in the Europe in the Opium Wars. And all the artifacts are distributed. Now they're buying them back and putting them in the museums. They're opening museums. They're giving pride to Chinese to say we are Chinese. And if you talk to young Chinese, they're very, very, they got a lot of pride and very proud of the country. They think they're patriots and they march on the streets every time 
They have an anniversary of the Nanjing massacre, I think Nanjing, you know, killing in 1933 or some, some other, some other, around that time. The Chinese have done it. The Arabs are doing it. The Arabs are doing it. I think suddenly we are hearing about the Islamic civilization's great achievements in science and technology, 11th, 12th, 13th century. Books are being written. Authors are being commissioned. A lot of things are happening. And suddenly the upsurge. And everywhere is done that everything of science and discovery is in the Quran. And the point of watch the Quran and say, it's already been said. Everything has been said. So they're doing it to send the message that we are not Bedus, we are not tri tribals, we are a great civilization. We have many things to be proud of. And of course, we, we fell into bad ways, the crusades happened. But all these things happen. They're doing it. So, what is India doing? We're declaring a civilization. You say you are a Hindu or Indian and talk about something, you are communal. It's the only country where you talk about yourself and civilization, you're deemed communal. I don't know what this word communal means. And you are not secular. The only secular people on the planet are the polytheistic people. If you're polytheistic, by nature you're secular. Because polytheism is many paths, no single path. In monotheism, you have one single path, one single God, one way to go to heaven. And you don't go to heaven. A friend of mine asked a Protestant in America, because he was trying to tell him about many things. He said, will Gandhiji go to heaven? Gandhiji will not go to heaven. According, because he's not baptized. <laughs> he's not going to heaven. But a terrorist who does jihad will go to heaven. Buddha will not go to heaven. Buddha is not baptized. Of course, Buddha creates his own heaven, right? Shankara will create his own heaven. But the point I'm trying to say is, monotheism by its very nature is restricted. It's only the age of enlightenment and the suppression of church and state which made Christianity what it is today, where there's a greater amount of freedom. Or you know what happened in the Dark Ages. Islam has not had a social revolution to create the distance between religion and the person. And I think that is having its ramifications in all the jihadis in this very bad interpretation of the Quran now. Quran is a religion of peace in many ways. It is true. But it also has verses which talk about how to treat the kafir. It, there are verses in the Bible, in the Torah, how to treat others. There are verses in Manusmiti, how to teach people who listen to the Vedas, right? We all know that. But we don't activate that. We ignore that. Why do we ignore that? Because they were creation of a particular time and space. And they're not very relevant today. We take the good things and say all the things should go away. And Christianity has done that. Islam has not done that. So we have the Ayas, we have the Jihadis who interpret. And they're all supposed to be good Islamists. And they're the ones who are going to go to heaven. So the monotheism creates a single path, whereas polytheism by its very nature creates multiple paths. And in polytheism, even an atheist has got space. Atheist is part of it. Show me which kind of a social structure or a religion provides for an atheist to be a full member of society. So, we have, we can never be communal. The idea of communalism and what it is, is I don't know what it is. So, so now, who should preserve a civilization's heritage. Who should preserve it? And the question we go to ask, and the other my friend Rajiv is asking, who should preserve it? The people to whom the civilization belongs should preserve it. They must invest. They must have scholars. They must have literature. They must have translation. They must have universities which do research. And we talk about it. Not to say Mera Bharat Mahan and all those things, flying saucers and all that. You know, we know they're all figments of somebody's imagination. 
But the good things about mathematics, about science, about ethics, about metallurgy, all the good things which are there have to be preserved and spoken about because they give us an identity. Now our children don't speak our languages. Our children don't speak Kannada, Hindi, Konkani or whatever it is. They speak English. And when they speak English, what are they going to teach them as content in your own civilization? The cuisines are all McDonald's and, uh, you know, uh, what is Friday? Good Friday or something like that, right? Something, TGI, TGI, yes. Huh? TGI Friday. Uh, TGI Friday, okay. They got all this stuff, pizzas, gizas and all that, right? I thought pizzas are banned now in the last two years. But, you know, our own food, our own cuisine is so rich, we're not passing on. Our lullabies, I go to Bangalore airport, I see a Kanadiga mother, tell this small kid, ba ba black sheep. Oh my God. I said, why didn't you say about the nursery rhymes in Canada? That's beautiful nursery rhymes. Right? They're there. How are you going to transmit it? Who has to preserve that? We have to preserve that. It cannot be preserved by outsiders. Now, the greatest, I think, I don't know, I may be wrong, the greatest collection of Sanskrit literature is out in the West. Maybe in Chicago, maybe in Germany, maybe somewhere else. Max Muller has become the global authority about our civilization. And Max Muller, I don't know whether he knew Sanskrit, right? He probably... He huh? had a dictionary. He had a dictionary. The first thing you do is create a dictionary. On the dictionary you read and you write and interpret what you want. Wendy Dong doesn't know Sanskrit. But she's acknowledged authority about Hinduism. 1.27 billion people's heritage civilization captured by a few individuals who preach a particular way and we're keeping quiet. What kind of a country is this? What kind of a people are we? Don't we have dash dash dash? <laughs> to stand up and put it ourselves? And we have this malcontents going on TV and decrying us for standing up and saying, that's not right. And why are we so tolerant? It's because we're so tolerant. There's growing tolerance. Not intolerance, there's growing tolerance in this country. De growing tolerance. Tolerance to decrying yourself. Very good. Tolerance to giving up your past. Tolerance to others, to letting others dominate your discourse and your civilization. Tolerance to giving up your heritage, giving up everything that is you in your blood, in your, in your, you know, in the way you live, in the way you dress. Everything is going. So we have to preserve it ourselves. And Rajiv is raising that point. To me, that's fundamental. And then, what have we lost? We lost a lot. We lost control of our lives. We lost control of our civilization. We lost control of our thinking. All these people. Some schools of Western thought, like Wendy or somebody else, um, he's very opposed to Sheldon Pollock. I know I'm a little bit more softer. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. But, you know, they're writing in their culture, their milieu, which is right. There's nothing wrong. If we are foolish and we are stupid, we can't blame somebody else. Yeah, he's writing to control us, to dominate us intellectually, tell you we know more about you and this is the way it is. And we have people like Ananya, Vajpayee and others going writing silly articles in the Hindu. But all these Sanskrit scholars in Banaras for hundreds of years preserving the culture, why the Misigones and the bad people, and she going to this place, wonderful place, in, in a, wherever she goes with Wendy, he is the greatest creator and the voice of Sanskrit. And we keep quiet. So we lo we're losing ourselves, we're losing our own culture. All the people in this room are part of this transition culture. You know Sanskrit, you know many things, but our children don't. So what is going to happen 30 years from now? We're going to put up a generation which does not know what India is. And we're going to put up a generation when we're going to become the third largest economy in the world. Maybe second largest economy in the world. There's going to be a rich country in 2030. We're going to be 8 to 10 trillion dollars. And we're growing pretty fast. 
And when we grow pretty fast, the end result is we're not sure of what we are. I think it's an important thing that we need to understand. And then, what India should do and why? What should India do? We should take control of our civilizational discourse. We should have many scholars who will research, who will write independently. There is no mumbo jumbo. It's all based upon, you know, facts. It's all based upon what you want to do. It's all based upon data. It's all based upon interpretation. And you can be critical to whatever degree you want. There is no one school of thought in India. We know that. We're a polytheistic people. So we need our own scholars to write, to debate, to create. We need our universities to have rich departments of comparative religion like other people have. The U.S. has many uses of comparative religion. Harvard has it. Stanford has it. Everybody has it. Oxford has it. Chambers has it. But we don't have it. The, when the British were there, we had it. We had a Sanskrit college in Banaras. Banaras in the U.S. got funding. But after it became independent, suddenly we became secular. Secularism doesn't mean the government does not invest in our past in religious studies. Secularism means the government does not promote any religion. So if you have a department of comparative religion in the university, even the Indians of science, for whatever it's worth, I mean, it is academic work. You do study in academic way to create a point of view. And there has to be public investment. It has to be done by, you know, public money. It has to be done by taxpayers' money to create a vital creation of of, you know, of uh, academics and scholars who can debate and carry on and reinterpret. And that's very, very important. And next, we need our billionaires to fund schools. We got 62 billionaires, $260 billion of value, of money they got. They need to put money here. Muti has done it in Harvard, that's very good. But he needs to give, do it in Bangalore too. He needs to do it in India too. Let him do it in Harvard. You know, Tata gave $50 million to uh, Harvard University or somewhere, right? I mean, he must do it in India too. Nothing wrong, do it here. Do it in the world, do it here. What the Chinese did, they fund universities to make sure their point of view is propagated in the West. We fund universities outside to make sure their point of view is propagated in India. I don't know how perverse you can get. So we lost control. So we give our money because we want to be seen as a white man's equal. I'm sorry I'm making this statement. I apologize, but I feel hurt. It's okay to do it and say, these are the conditions we want our civilization to be propagated. We want our scholars to come and to make sure that people understand their views, right? That's the way we are. We have to promote ourselves. This is marketing. This is a consumer world. Nobody is going to market your point of view, right? We want to teach Balaji, who has never come to India, born in the U.S. or something, at good techie, what an Indian truly is, right? We've got to teach him. So we need our own stuff. So we need our billionaires to fund all this. We need people to come and to study it and create jobs for people who come out of them. So they're scholars, so we keep it alive. Now, why is Rajiv important? Why is Rajiv important? Because Rajiv realized this 20, 25 years ago. And Rajiv has fought the battle. Rajiv has been ostracized. Rajiv has done a variety of books with his own money, with his own time to tell us, hey guys, you're losing something which is very valuable to you. You're using your soul. You're losing your soul, and it's not going to come back. It takes time to build a soul. You got a lot of soul, hundreds of years of work. You know, whenever I go to do my shraddha for my father, when I sit down and do it for my father, we do the pindadan and all that, right? I always think of the long line of people who sacrificed and did many things so I could come into the world and be what I am. I am what I am because the investment they have made in creating a society, keeping society alive, creating culture. Right? And by this, I pay homage to the souls. I'm a long line, it's a continuum, and I must pass it on. And I'm not passing it on. I must pass on my heritage, the good and the bad, and allow them to debate. 
But we're not doing it. The disconnection is happening. We're giving up. Is it good to have traditions? Each one of us has to make a own judgment. I'm not saying it's good or bad. You have to make your own judgment because it's important for you to understand your identity, what you want to preserve, what it is. Yes, there are many good things and bad things. There's the caste structure that's going away. In fact, Ashutosh Vasne told me just in a breakfast this week, he said, caste is morphing into a lobby. If you look back to caste in 1920, there were no CST, there were no OBC. There were many, many multiple castes. And each caste was fighting to create superiority. Even the Brahmin community, you got Drivedi, Chaturvedi, Trivedi, all the Vedis, right? Saying, I'm bigger than you, right? Is there a structure, power structure? Now what has happened, politicians have created structures like SEST to create a lobby to get things for themselves. Then the OBC lobby, there's nothing like an OBC. They only cast, they collect them together, and each one has a lobby, and that's fantastic because a social structure has morphed into an economic structure or a political structure, and that means the old disparities will go away. And that's very good. Caste is morphed into something else that may be good or bad. Now, Rajiv has studied this, written about it, is talking about it. So, Rajiv is important to me, and Rajiv should be important to all of us, and we have to support him, and through Rajiv, create a group of um, academics who can carry this forward. And why Sanskrit? Why should we study Sanskrit? Many people on the left say, Sanskrit is dead. I think even uh, Sheldon Pollock has said, Sanskrit is dead, right? Bendy right. has said, Sanskrit is dead. It's all dead language. Ananya writes, Sanskrit is dead. I don't want to give glory to Ananya by repeating it, but I feel very offended by the article she wrote in the Hindu. I wish many of you look at it and read it and get sufficiently angry and have a blood boil to keep on writing rejoinders. <laughs> I mean, it's disparaging, it's disparaging, insulting, and humiliating. That a small tweet writes such things about scholars who spend their whole lives on doing big things. Why Sanskrit? Because our content is in Sanskrit, the original content is in Sanskrit. Why Greek? Why Latin? Even now in the Vatican, the liturgy is in Latin. They keep it alive. Why is that? Because the original content is there. And in translation, much is lost. And in Sanskrit, the beautiful language, in the intonation, new meanings arise. That's what I'm told. In the intonation, new meanings arise. And if you don't have the proper intonation, the meanings get lost. It morphs into something else. And the intonation is the way to keep it alive and interpret in a particular manner. My Kannada professor, Venkatesh Murthy, who is a poet, was speaking in Hegodu, Hegodu, where I once went. I lost my way there, went there, spent three days. And he's saying, why are there multiple Ramayanas and Mahabharatas in India? He said, there are multiple Ramayanas because Ramayana is a great epic. It's a story with a lot of values and meanings. And he says, each generation in his own genius to reinterpret the Mahabharata and the Ramayana in his own context, because the context changes. Was Rama here right in banishing Sita? Now with women's lip and all, it is not right. <laughs> you can't say she's right. But he did in a particular milieu, so now we've got to reinterpret. Was Rama a god who was everything? Or Rama a great human being? We've got to reinterpret. So every society, every generation rewrites Ramayana in his own way, and there are multiple points of view. But to me, the principle of free thought, the principle of interpreting, the principle of not having anything so sacred that is bound in time and fixed in time, and nobody shall move one single word. That principle of freedom is the greatest freedom India has given to the world. The freedom to critique your own religion, to reinterpret, to rewrite. And to say some things that you want, you can make Rama into a Ravana, Ravana into a Rama, it doesn't matter. Because they're reinterpreting. That intellectual freedom is the fountain of civilization. And that is what has kept our civilization alive. And that's why all of us are here. All of us are here to, to read Rajiv's book, to debate, to fight. 
and there can be no violence in this country when we debate and we don't disagree. We disagree vehemently. It's all right. When disagreement is part of a culture. And that's very important. So Sanskrit is a content. Sanskrit is an operating system. It's an open system. Indian Silla is an open system. Sanskrit is an open system. You can add on it. And it is a structured system so that it carries on and the meaning doesn't change. Like code doesn't change, right? It's logical. So it's very logical. So we must learn Sanskrit. And you must have Sanskrit scholars. And you must go to the originals. From the originals, you must reinterpret every generation. Like Greek is kept alive, Latin is kept alive. We all know it's public investment. And only in doing that can we keep it alive. Does it add meaning to us? Because when we read the old text, understand all this, we understand why we behave in a particular way. Why we do things in a particular way. Many of us don't know why it happens. How it happens, right? And if you do that, we understand our place in the world. We understand the intersection. I've been reading books now, which, which say that in Central Asia, there's a very large Buddhist civilization. There are all temples there in Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan, all the stans, huge temples. And those people are very, very, let's say, uh, more open than the Arab, Arabs. And even there in, in, the, in the Middle East, there were temples. So we don't know our own history, how far our civilization spread. And there's a book in the book which says that uh, in Armenia, there was a Hindu community in the 13th century. In Mitra, Mitra. And you know, the Iranian Zoroastrian civilization, our civilization were mixed. Because they all worship Indra. So we don't know all this stuff. We don't know all, all the things that happened. And we need to know it because that history will tell us what our place in. And that's why we got to learn Sanskrit. And Sanskrit has to be kept alive. And Sanskrit is not a dead language. It's a content, it's an operating system. And it should not die. Because Sanskrit dies, our soul dies. We die. We become rootless. And that is very important for us. So, I just want to say, this is my interpretation about what Rajiv has written. I don't know whether he agrees with me, because I want to have a very broad interpretation. There are many things written about content, about the challenges, and many things people have done, and why we have to reclaim. I agree with most things. Some I will defer, he's my friend. So thank you very much for listening to me, and I'm very happy to be here just to share some views with you. Thank you very much.